It's Behind the Headlines, and I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Three veterans from our panel back this morning for the conversation. Joe Workmeister, uh, he's an editor up at the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Joe. Hey, how's it going, Joe? Denise Civiletti, who's, in, who's the editor at uh, Riverhead Local. Uh, good morning, Denise. Good morning. And Vera Chinise, who's the staff writer for Newsday, who covers the East End. Hey, Vera. Good morning, Joe. So, Denise, let's start with you. Um, you had a story this week about some proposals in Riverhead. Uh, there are changes to the housing law, and on the surface, they sort of seem uh pretty simple changes in wording, but some folks in the community turned out to say that they might have a real impact on parts of the community up there, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's, that's a fact. And I think that, um, well, the town board uh, said at the outset, because it was such a kind of a, like a reaction to it, even before the hearing uh, on Tuesday night, uh, that they said at the outset that they knew they were gonna be going back to the drawing board on this. Um, the, the criticism, well, the proposal, first of all, was to incorporate some definitions that had long been in the town code of family or functional equivalent of a family. And the way they define um, that or those, those terms um, kind of let open the door to um, prosecution. They made it a writable offense and it kind of opened the door to prosecution of anybody who's renting and also made tenants liable under the law for violation, um, who's renting to people who are not a fa traditional family or functional equivalent of a family. And that means uh, potentially roommates, um, people who uh, are just kind of, you know, living together. I mean, it was clearly, this was clearly aimed at attempting to um, get uh, inspect and, and write up homes that are occupied by groups of people who are not necessarily related by blood and um you know which, which is pretty which is pretty prominent in the in the latino community right well now. i mean you know there are a lot of people that uh rent homes together um or rent you know rooms and homes uh basically because they can't afford to live uh, to rent the house i mean housing rental housing is you know through the roof i mean it's become the de facto affordable housing, yeah. and it has been for a long time, right? And as I mean, as as um, Ian Wilder, who is an attorney and uh, the executive director of Long Island Housing Services, pointed out in a letter and then in an interview I did with him the day before, um, you know, this is nothing new. This is like the kind of like the traditional way for immigrants to assimilate into uh, American life. You know, they live together, they come here, they get jobs, they can't afford, you know, to live independently and they room together. And, you know, this is not something that's new with um, the Latino uh, community in Riverhead or anywhere else. And uh, yeah, you know, I also have to point out, it's not just within the Latino community. because over, over the 20 years that, that I've been involved with the newspapers, 
Um, we've certainly had reporters who've, who've moved into the area and rented rooms in houses. That's the only real affordable option for a lot of young people who are coming out here for jobs. Absolutely. Yeah, I, would, I would say, just to jump in real quick, but I, I would yeah. guarantee that those are not the people that code enforcement's going to be coming and I, checking I, I guarantee, when you're I guarantee that. So. And, 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 and that's you know, a big part. The, the, town, the town maintained that what they were, what they were really trying to do here was to uh, go after unscrupulous landlords who were providing substandard and unsafe housing and, uh, and conditions for their tenants. And I mean, one question that left to my mind, actually, as I was writing this story, which, you know, needed to be edited and cut by about, I don't know, 1500 words or so. Um, <laughs> but um, it was that, you know, where they have been like, you know, slumlords in Riverhead is not a new something new, you know. I mean, as long as I've been here, the 35 years or so that I've been living in Riverhead, there have been slumlords that have, you know, had substandard rental housing that they were renting to people and homes that were subdivided into three and four apartments. And and it's like it's not a new thing. So why did it become a problem now? Denise, one of the things you said really struck me. You said that this uh, this proposal would also allow the town to go after the tenants. That that sounds like something new, because generally speaking, um, in most of these end towns, the rules apply to landlords, but they don't really go after the tenants. And that seems pretty aggressive uh, when you're blaming a tenant for living somewhere, um, you know, that might be substandard. My read of this proposed language was that, uh, you know, Tenants, you know, landlords, property owners, tenants say they're in the list of people that could be charged with a violation. So, so yeah. Um, anyway, people brought up, you know, in a nutshell, the people brought up all kinds of problems with this. Uh, Ian Wilder talked about uh, at length about the, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 and how it, this would violate that and how doing so would, he said, put the town's HUD funding at risk. Um and um, people also spoke very passionately and emotionally in some instances about what this would mean to them if they couldn't, you know, share a home. And, uh, you know, there was a woman there as a single mother sharing a home with another single mother or sharing an apartment in a house with another single mother and her kid. And, um, you know, she spoke through an interpreter saying, you know, what what, ha- what that would mean to her. There was a young man who... Um, said he came here, uh, he crossed the border uh, from Guatemala. Uh, he was originally from Guatemala, he crossed the border into the US when he was 17 years old. And um, he said, you know, he had nobody here. He knew he had a cousin and his cousin took him in. He shared a room with his cousin and he was able to get into a program at BOCES. He learned the language, he learned the trade. We've actually written about him in the past. And um, he, he said how, you know, then he managed to rent a house with seven other guys that, and, you know, he, he said two to a room. He said, that was the best time of my life. He said, we had a nice house. It was like, you know, he really enjoyed it. I know my husband did the same thing with his friends when he was that age as well. And, you know, this guy talked about how he got a leg up and he has since, you know, he was a refugee. He was since got legal status. He since got a green card. Um, He's a hardworking guy and, and uh, this year bought a house and he was just, he was very animated. He spoke with such uh, passion and he was so articulate that he was interrupted by applause a couple of times. And, and he said, he, he asked this question and I don't think I managed to get this in the story, but, but he's like, you know, 
he says, you don't really want to exclude guys like me, right? And I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly who they, that's exactly who they want to exclude. Sorry, but, you know, but yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what I, I all also, the complaints are about. How's it I, like that? You know, I wanted to raise the, the point too, Joe, the, the, uh, you know, it's a broad brush. You know, when you when you paint when you're changing housing codes, you're going to paint with a broad brush, and you're going to catch a lot of people um, that maybe you don't intend to to affect, but you're but you're going to affect them. That's just the nature of changing housing codes. And I feel like this fight for a balance. I mean, I think that the codes really do have a legitimate purpose of trying to protect tenants, and and tenants are often rented substandard um, housing and, and, you know, you need to have protections, but you also don't want to eliminate all of the only options for affordable housing that exist on the East End. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a delicate balance and, you know, you, you know, people may be living in, you know, b- bad conditions that, you know, they don't maybe necessarily even realize that, you know, this should not be acceptable what they're currently in. You know, this, you know, this shouldn't have to be the way it is. Um, or, know, or they it, feel like they don't have any other options. Right. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I remember nice. year, years ago writing, writing a couple of stories and, and it was, you know, out, out South Fork but <clears throat> where you had, you had these guys coming in and renting a house and then going in and kind of putting up walls themselves. And then, you know, and then, you know, sub sub renting, you know, rooms in, in horrible conditions and stuff. But it's those conditions you've got to address. If this is about safety, then then address that and maybe make it easier to go in and, and inspect these properties. But let's look at, at, you know, the building codes and safety and make sure there's, you know, egress and, uh, you know, be able to get in and out of, of these areas that they're not putting up, you know, fake walls, that it's not just extension cords running from one room to another, right. you know, that type of thing. But But just to attack the you know, the, the, you know, the, the quote unquote family unit is, is just, it seems uh, the wrong approach to me. And speaking about the family unit, the, um, you know, one person raised the point of, you know, what about, you know, LGBT, LGBTQ people, when you talk about this traditional family, well, uh, you know, how do they fit into a traditional family? They're, you know, they're not traditional at all. So, and so, you know, what effect does it have on those type of people who are for, so many years have been kind of outcasts of society and, and, and have our traditional, traditional family. To, yeah, to them, yeah. it is a family unit. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and that's that's something that needs to be taken into consideration. Denise, you were going to say something? I, I just want to say, uh, pardon to what uh, Bill, Bill was mentioning, that a lot, speaker after speaker got up the other night and said, hey, you know, you already have the tools. You already have laws on the book in the town and the state, you know, codes that, um, you can, if you enforce them, you can address these unsafe conditions. The things that you mentioned, Bill, I mean, I've heard that from firefighters and police officers in Riverhead that, you know, these, these walls that are built that are unexpected, doors that are padlocked, extension cords running all over the place, those things should not exist for sure. And, you know, the town needs to be able to enforce them. I think they've got a problem with actually gaining access to homes. Right. I mean, there's there's a legal process. And I mean, thank goodness for that, right? I mean, we don't want, you know, people storming into private homes, but, um, you know, there's a legal process and it can be difficult and time consuming and very costly to pursue that process. And I think the town was trying to find a way to um, do that, you know, do the enforcement like this in just in the, in the context of the town justice court, as opposed to having to go, and, and get search warrants and, and uh, proceed in, in um, state supreme. So and, and Vera, clearly in, in it this, was a failure. 
in this region, Vera, this is nothing new. These conversations happen all the time, and we see enforcements in Southampton and East Hampton towns. And uh, but but there really hasn't been a similar move. Uh, this sounds like the first time to really try and go in and change the code to make it a little more aggressive that way. I, I'm trying trying to think of, of a similar effort in Southampton or East Hampton. No, I don't Southampton, so. I feel like, is doing the opposite. You know, they're trying to relax the code to make it easier for people to share housing. You remember maybe two or three years ago, they relaxed the accessory apartment law, you know, to try and make it easier for people to rent out a portion of their house. Um yeah, I feel like creating housing has been more of a priority for Southampton Town than um, trying to eliminate it for anybody. It's interesting. Um, that's a different um, arrangement when you're talking about adding accessory apartments. Now you have a separate living space for a separate family unit. But mm-hmm. I think what's being targeted are one big house that's being used by uh, a group of people who might not be related. And, and yeah. you know, that also goes back to, I think um, someone mentioned that, you know, it's nothing new. Group houses on on the South Fork were the way a lot of young people spent their summers for many, many years. The town did, the, the towns did crack down on those and I th- they still exist and the party houses still are out there, but they're much more under the radar than they used to be. Yeah. Difference being is is those were, you know, those were priced up and those were people that, you know, could afford a share of of that for for a summer where, you know, with with, um, you know, this talking about the people in Riverhead, these are people who can't afford anything else and need to find a way to to live and survive with the cost of, of housing what it is. I mean, they can't go rent in a maybe they can't go rent an apartment or, or a house on on their own or whatever. And they need to come together to to make living affordable. As a final point on the subject, we got to point out that uh, with Kathy Hochul taking over as governor this week. So we have a community housing fund proposal on the governor's mm-hmm. desk approved by both uh, both houses of the state legislature. Um, ready to be signed that would start a fl- uh, at least take the first step towards beginning a flow of money towards East End towns to address the affordable housing problem. Governor Cuomo wasn't really willing to sign it. He actually vetoed it once before. Uh, have to wonder if the, the change in governor may mean a change in uh, potential for, for that to get, a, get signed and put into place in time for the towns to take action in 2022. Uh, something to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the uh, executive editor of the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. With us today, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Vera Chinise from Newsday. You know, speaking of people, we had a big count of people uh, in 2020, and we got some results this week. And Vera, you know, the East End... And I know that on the South Fork in particular, we took a closer look at the numbers and the numbers and and we were parsing them to try and figure out uh, whether some of it had to do with more people simply identifying uh, their houses on the East End as their primary residences because of the timing of, of the pandemic. But however you slice it, the numbers are soaring on the East End, right? Yeah, so um, I... Um, so working for Newsday, I actually have the advantage of um, 
you know, we have a, a data team here and um, some of the people here have uh, created this spreadsheet that has some very, very specific information down to the zip code. Uh, oh, what a, what a luxury. I have, some, I have <laughs> honestly, yeah. it is a luxury, you know, and I'm yeah. so grateful for this. I'm so grateful for my colleagues who created this. Um, so I want to talk about that. This is for a journalist. Getting this trove of data is like Christmas. It's so great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Stories you could tell out of this. Um, and yes, the population on the South Fork has um, significantly grown. Um, spoke to Jay Schneiderman yesterday, and uh, and I'm sure a lot of the other town officials would say that he thinks it's undercounted. Um, so it says, uh, I think Southampton's population went from like 56,000 to like 69,000. And, and Jay thought that was a significant undercount. Um, so, you know, the census is definitely an imperfect tool, but it's, um, it's the best we got. Um, and it's also interesting. The undercount, Vera, is, is largely uh, within the Hispanic, the Latino community. Um, Minerva Perez from Ola mentioned that, that because of some of the rhetoric that surrounded the Absolutely. census. The Trump uh, administration. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine she's, there's a lot of fear. She's, um, she's very um, con convinced that the undercount in the Spanish speaking community is significant. And I would think that that's, you know, that's probably true, but I mean, also in the second homeowner community, it might be undercounted. You know, somebody might've, a lot of people might've already finished their census form before the pandemic hit. Um, so that might be undercounted too. You know, it's kind of difficult to say. Um, so some, Interesting figures I want to pull out um, comparing the South Fork to the rest of Long Island, looking at um, all the towns. Hold on, I'm going to pull it up right now. All the towns across Long Island, um, every town lost white people with the exception of East Hampton and Southampton. At least the percentage of. No, of, I mean the raw. The actual numbers went. The actual numbers. Yeah. Really? Um, significantly. And I guess a lot of that has to do with the pandemic. I think uh, some of it also, I've, I've read that on a national level, that the census changed the way people can uh, self-identify in the census. And it may mean that some people who identified as white in 2010, in 2020, had the option of, of multiracial and, and may have uh, chosen that option. Um, that may have something to do with the numbers changing, too. And that may be true, but I'm going to give you some numbers, and I don't think that that would explain these huge increases. So Southampton Town, between 2010 and 2020, gained 4,948 white people. Uh, East Hampton, hold on, let me pull it up, in that same time, gained 4,000 white people. So I don't think that that would uh, explain that. Um, I, I, I think it's... it's well, it's interesting, though, there's no way to pull out, you know, how much of that is is due to the pandemic or was yeah. that spread out over 10 years or was that just in the last year and a half? And, and I would I would argue that a lot of people that fled the, the, the city or other areas to to come out to the, you know, to their second homes in the Hamptons or buying homes in the Hamptons or whatever, that that, you know, the, the people that could afford to do that may have been. Uh, you know, upper upper class white, white, white folks. And absolutely. But so let's look at a Brookhaven town in that same period lost 43,000 white people. Wow. So, I mean, you juxtapose those two numbers. I mean, that that says a lot to me. 
Um, so then another interesting, obviously we see the, the Hispanic, uh, Hispanic population has grown. That's not a surprise to anybody, but the black population is, is decreasing in Southampton. So you have, um, zip codes that may have traditionally been, uh, black enclaves that are becoming less so right. and more Hispanic. So Flanders, Hampton Bays, Southampton village, all lost black people and gained a significant amount of Hispanic people. So I'm working on a story this week. That's going to look at that. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. And Denise, have you had a chance to, to look through numbers in Riverhead? Um, a, a little bit. I haven't really taken a deep dive into it. Um, but um, I, I mean, I, I am completely convinced that the, the Hispanic population was undercounted here, probably everywhere. I mean, so, I mean, you had the pandemic at, at work, obviously, or yeah, that, that screwed everything up. Everything was late. And, but the overriding thing with that particular community, um, I think, is, you know, that whole citizenship question sure. that the federal government was looking to, you know, ask that the Trump administration, Wilbur Ross, et cetera. I mean, that was in court. Um, there, you know, they are uh, that the Hispanic community, for obvious reasons, or a portion of them anyway, is, is reluctant to answer questions, at, to participate in the census at all. And um, you know, when you have that kind of rhetoric being thrown around, and the and you know the the government, the federal government, looking to add that question to the census. Um, I think that had to uh, strike a blow to uh, people's willingness to participate. But that's also, I mean, it's been a historic thing. Do you guys remember when uh, like Dave Capel did his own census in Greenport because he was so convinced that the Latino population was undercounted there? He actually undertook a census of his own um, and came up with an alternative set of numbers. Um, I, it says the 2020 numbers say that um, Hispanic, people who identify as Hispanic or Latino are 15.3% of the population. And um, there, so there's this now, there's a category like white alone. So you're white, non-Hispanic, non-Latino, or then white, including people who identify their race as white, but their ethnicity as Hispanic. And those are two different numbers. That was like 83, I didn't, I didn't write it down versus uh, white alone was 72 percent so um, yeah it gets, it gets complicated because yeah. you know it's it's an ethnicity rather than a race and i think yeah. that complicates it in a lot of people's minds joe I, the the other thing to me that i find ironic is the undercount um in a region like this can have real serious effects on things like federal funding and 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 it and it misses the need that we have here because we have a diverse community and we have a community that includes a, a lot of immigrants and a lot of in some cases undocumented immigrants um, we need to be able to count them so that we can get the requisite funds to try and provide services and we're just not able to do that in part because the census was kind of hamstrung a little bit right yeah, definitely. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people probably don't quite realize with what's going on with the census and why it's important in the first place. And I think part of the effort, a lot of people that, you know, these groups that go out and try to, um, you know, get people to take part in the, the census that aren't, you know, part of that is trying to get the message across that this is actually important, not just to have a number so we can say, okay, there's 35,000 people in Riverhead, but 
what those numbers mean and what the effects are and how, you know, if we don't count correctly, we don't get that as much of that, you know, federal assistance that we could be entitled to. And there's, you know, the way congressional seats are drawn up changes and, and there's, you know, there's obviously big ripple effects and, but, you know, how do you sort of get that message across to people, um, that, you know, maybe in the Hispanic community that aren't speaking English, maybe uh, proficiently, uh, you know, so that's, that's a tough challenge. And, you know, we did see groups out here that were, um, you know, last summer, um, you know, organizing to try to get the um, message across, you know, Sister Margaret Smith, who does so much with the immigrant community out here at the North Fork Spanish Apostle, it was heavily involved in that. And, um, you know, so, you know, I, you know, I think they tried as, as best they could, um, but, you know, it's always going to be going to be a challenge. And um, it, it would be curious, you know, kind of compare what the final numbers were of how many people they think they reached compared to 2010. And, you know, if, if those numbers were similar or not, I haven't been able to see that yet. I, yeah, uh, very- I can remember back to, to 2010 and I can remember 10 years before that, even, you know, us reporting on census numbers. And, and I think we said the same thing you know, both, both times that, you know, that, that, that number of, of, you know, Spanish speaking people was, was under, undercounted in, you know, in, in both cases. And, and I'm sure that is, you know, the case now, and I don't know how you get over the, the fear that, you know, that Denise was talking about of, you know, giving away an immigration status or, or whatever, it's a, you know, tight knit community and some, some strange government guys knocking on your door asking, you know, who lives in the house. Um, if, you know, I, I don't know how you get over that. And, and Vera, it, it should be pointed out that at the state level, uh, with the census, uh, it did have a big impact. We lost a seat, seat in, yeah. we lost the seat in the house and that may have some repercussions locally as far as how the, the really lines draw the first district. Yeah. Yeah. And, I and mean, those lines, the, the way the line is drawn could be significant in a political sense too, because, the line is in a part of the county that is much more Republican. And, and depending on where they draw the line for the first district, it could really change uh, the future. That's been a district that swung back and forth over the last 20 years or so. Um, the redrawing that line could have a significant effect on the future. of. I mean, of yeah, who- with with our congressman running for governor and not being in the race this year, that that's going to be, I would say, like a nationally important race and. 2022. I think all eyes, a lot of people will be watching that. What, what kind pointing, of timeline is there to redraw? Yeah, I'm not sure. That? And it's, it's worth pointing out that, that the democratic government in Albany is going to be in charge of redrawing the lines. So if, if anything, uh, it may lean towards being more beneficial for, for the Democrats when they redraw that line, but but I'm not you know the I'm not sure uh, how quickly that happens or wh- if it'll affect it takes this a couple race. Of, no, it takes a couple of years at least. Yeah, there's, yeah, but there's it's, committees yeah. committees in Albany that you know that, that look at that and go back and forth, and it'll be something to watch going office. forward because uh, that certainly has been true of the last the last twenty years or so that that um, that seat has gone both ways uh, over the years. So we'll see if that changes. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. With us today on Behind the Headlines uh, is Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and uh, Vera Chinise of Newsday. Um, so let's talk about um, something a couple of you guys have written about. Joe, I think you, you guys wrote about uh, the string of opioid deaths on the North Fork, um, which was pretty stunning over the course of a couple of days, 
uh, we had, what, a half a dozen um, opioid deaths from what police were describing as a bad batch of, I think it was cocaine laced with fentanyl. Do I have that correct? Yeah, yeah correct. It, um, the six, six fatal overdoses um, confirmed uh, so far. Um, That's amazing. In, in yeah. such a short period of time and, and over a very small area, correct? Yeah, basically contained from areas in South Old Town um, and on Shelter Island as well. Uh, there was one one fatal overdose there. And um, yeah, really just a, a tragic story all around. And this really came to a head you know, kind of uh, a week ago today, um, kind of late late in the day Friday, we started hearing about uh, that there had been some some overdoses and, and not just, you know, kind of we were sort of run of the mill. Somebody had overdose and that, that there could be something more to this and uh, started looking into it. And we we're you know, kind of able to get the confirmation from police early Saturday morning last week that there at that point had been um, five fatal overdoses. Then we quickly um, confirmed shortly after that, that the uh, police had also um, found a sixth on shelter Island. And then, um, so it's been, you know, a, a kind of a crazy week since as um, you know, the community mourns, uh, uh, you know these people who who died a lot of lot kind of linked in the in the restaurant industry people who are known um either working at different restaurants or you know just been familiar faces at a lot of places in that sort of scene and um uh, there was a vigil uh, last sunday night in greenport village and uh and and then it kind of all uh, came to a head yesterday with uh two with two arrests um so two people have now been charged in connection to these um uh, overdoses. And, uh, so there was, you know, big, big, uh, big press conference yesterday with the district attorney and kind of brought everyone together, uh, talking about that. So it was a lot going on there with, with those arrests. And, uh, yeah, so there's a, a lot of layers to the story for sure. Absolutely. Hard, hard, hard story to cover. I'm, yeah. I'm sure for all of it you. It really is. And, and there were, there was at least one save, uh, with Narcan, I believe connected to that as um, well. Right. So we don't, yeah, we, we I mean, the the impact of that bad batch of drugs uh, was was fairly wide. Denise, the, the, the odd thing about that, though, I mean, is is I mean, these these people died from fentanyl overdoses, but you don't typically see fentanyl mixed with with cocaine. So as they were overdosing for people even to, to know to try the Narcan, you know, would have would have been difficult um, because you wouldn't expect it to be be an opioid overdose. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, Denise, the, the state's gotten a lot tougher on drug dealers uh, when there are overdose deaths involved with the, the drugs they provide. Right. I mean, they, they face a new level of of uh, of uh, responsibility for those yeah. deaths. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk uh, about the, that the, a little the, bit? They, the drug? Uh, probably not. But uh, <laughs> the. the um, the uh, drug dealer, you know, they're holding drug dealers responsible for fatalities and overdoses in a way that they uh, had not previously. They had not been able to previously. I think there was an amendment to state law, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Joe might actually be more familiar, you know, fresh in his mind about this now because of um, there's, there's uh, a, a what he's been reporting on. There's a proposed change to the law, Joe, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I believe the way it is now, the highest charge they could get somebody is uh, a second degree manslaughter. 
And okay. they've only charged that for a couple of times couple in the of county. Times, yeah. um, I know, you know, the, when it happened uh, fairly recently out here, you know, we had reported it was only the third or fourth time it had happened. So, um, you know, it's, that's been relatively new. And, and the district attorney yesterday was talking about this new um, amendment that would uh, this legislation was saying it, you know, bipartisan le- legislation in the state that would basically um, allow them to, I guess, give a, a murder charge for. Um, you know, a drug dealer in this case. So uh, there were some state senators talking about uh, that legislation at the press conference yesterday. And, you know, uh, Senator Anthony Palumbo, Assemblywoman um, Jody Giglio were there talking about it as well. So, um, you know, we'll see, we, yeah. you know, if that legislation takes off. And these, um, these you know, cuts might be the catalyst to, to help get that to get that approved, I would think. Yeah, I haven't I haven't looked too much into the history of that, of how long that's kind of been floating around or if they've tried to pass that through before and didn't go through or not. Um, so I don't know that either, but I know that they've been speaking about that. Uh, it, it, it just jarred my ailing memory. The uh, <laughs> we had we had um, a man in Riverhead who was convicted of uh, but on that man on those manslaughter charges for causing uh, causing at least one, if not two, fatal overdoses in Riverhead. And um, he, uh, you know, was kind of like a known drug dealer, multiple convictions and, and stuff like that. And I guess that this uh, guy, I don't know if he was from Greenport, but the alleged dealer, the guy that was charged, all of those were traced to right. that one guy, right? And then they charged his supplier, some somebody from Smithtown. Yeah. Sounded like. Um, right. So, so, I, so I know that the police are going to, maybe face some criticism. They were investigating the guy from Greenport for months and they had had, um, according to police, according to to the articles I read that, that they had done some undercover buys from this guy, cocaine buys all the way back to, to November, I, I think. And, and of course, nobody knows the details of the police investigation. There may be some criticism that, you know, that, that maybe they should have arrested him before, but, um, I think you have to you have to kind of trust the police that 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 was an ongoing investigation. And there were certainly elements that that they were following there. But I thought that was um, there was also a bit of an outcry um, in the among the restaurant folks uh, in Greenport, uh, at least about like the police not putting the word out about this drug that's laced with fentanyl Mm -hmm. is coke with fentanyl on the street to try to, you know, prevent other overdoses and people were very upset about that. I mean, they, you know, I don't know. That's interesting. Um, That's yeah. something that came up in our newsroom too, that yeah. whether the, yeah. the police should have said something, I felt like they said something fairly soon. They did. About, they said don't, they some don't, don't do. from the news media though. Yeah, yeah. very possibly. But yeah, mm-hmm. the, the word came out. I know maybe it was after a Joe, after, after you guys started making phone calls, but yeah. we did get word that, that, you know, there were there was a bad batch of drugs on the street. But um, yeah, anytime you have deaths like this, you have to start to, to wonder about the infrastructure and whether it responded quickly enough um, to the problem. I also feel like fentanyl has been a game changer yeah. um, in the drug problem on the East End that that until the widespread uh, prevalence of fentanyl showing up in all different kinds of recreational drugs, um, I, I think that just because of its volatility, um, it's, it's just a game changer. It's, it's made everything so much more risky. The behavior is so much more risky and it's just so much more high stakes than it, than it used to be. Um, 
Okay, so moving on, we, we, we also should talk briefly about the changing situation with the COVID virus. Um, and the big question now as the approach of the school year is coming quickly, uh, it's about masks in schools. And I think uh, up in Riverhead, uh, they began to have this conversation this week, right, Joe? Is that something that, that came up? Yeah, so a Tuesday, Tuesday night's uh, school board meeting, the superintendent kind of uh, began to uh, announce their reopening plan and, and whether they would, um, you know, enforce a mask mandate or not. And, you know, before they um, did that, um, you know, they allowed the members of the public to speak. And, um, you know, a lot of people got up and spoke. They also read um, you know, something like 30 comments that or you know, submissions that were sent uh, electronically. And, you know, as you would expect, the opinions varied, you know, from the, you know, really crazy end of, you know, people saying that masks don't work at all and cause, you know, disease A, B, C, and D, E, and F, um, you know, to other people just sort of, uh, you know, trying to say, well, you know, it's a parent's choice and, um, you know, it should be up to me to decide whether my student wears a mask or not. And, um, you know, other people, you know, teach some teachers saying how it makes it difficult uh, to lead the classroom where you can't see uh, student students' expressions. Um, they can't see the teachers um, talking, particularly in the younger children. Um, and then you have, you know, the other people saying, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic still, and we need to do what we can to keep, um, keep schools open. And, you know, if we just ditch the mess altogether and cases start going up and then we have to quarantine and then we have to you know, switch back to remote learning. We, our, our school's going to then close, you know, that ripple effect. If, if you don't take, if you just throw out the protective measures and, um, and, and so, you know, it was, I would say maybe a little bit uh, lean toward pro mask uh, than anti mask. I mean, the anti mask people are probably louder and you know, more vocal and, and, and whatnot, but um, you know, in Riverhead, they did ultimately decide that they, you know, wouldn't have a mask uh, mandate starting uh, to start the school year for indoors only, you know, outdoors kids could still take the masks off and, you know, they would encourage teachers, you know, when possible to uh, take the kids outside, you know, obviously, you know, you don't have too, too long and in, into September and maybe a little October where you could really, do that with weather wise, but um, yeah, so that's where it stands now, you know, the other school district, you know, obviously every school district is looking at this and, um, you know, at Shorewind River, they're, they're, they had a meeting on Tuesday and, and they're going to formally decide next week. And, um, you know, out in Greenport, they said they're going to have mass. Um, so it seems to be, I, I would think more schools are leaning toward the mass than not. Um, I think, and, and the incoming governor has announced that she intends to implement a mask mandate when she takes office, um, which is clearly something, and she says she has the authority to do it through the Department of Health, and uh, it's clearly something, I say clearly, my opinion, clearly something the outgoing governor should have done. Um, you know, I was very um, uh, curious, I don't know if that's the right word, I got mad actually, um, <laughs> yesterday, when the CDC released um, this, these studies yesterday, uh, two days ago, one of them was a study from the New York State Department of Health, right? That's uh, looked at um, what we should do and how these breakthrough infections and who's getting infected, et cetera, and how you know 15% or more of the infections are now uh, breakthrough infections. Um, the CD, the uh, New York State Department of Health's own study, which was released 
which was concluded, the data was collected and was being analyzed when Cuomo said he's not going to do this with the masks again. Um, he already had that study. That study was already, you know, wrapped up and he still made that decision. And, you know, if that's not just politics and, yeah. you know, that has no place in a public health crisis, we see that over and over again. Uh, it w- there was nothing else to it. Um, that the, the New York State Department of Health, unbeknownst to the rest of us, was for months, you know, collecting this data and, and analyzing it. And they had wrapped that up by the time he made that announcement. Um, and given his, you know, his personality, you know, he had to know about that, even though he must have been very distracted with all the other things going on. But, you know, you know, he had to be have been told about that. And that's just uh, to me, that's just kind of unforgivable. So I feel like uh, the incoming governor is going to do the right thing. Um, I will. I got to say, we got to give a lot of credit, right, Joe, to the uh, incoming, the new superintendent in Riverhead. Uh, you know, he's just started this job and he had a split board. It was a four to three vote. Yeah. Um, and, and that was a lot for him to shoulder, I think. So uh, kudos to him. for, for Yeah, he definitely. Recommendation. Yeah, I thought he seemed pretty uh, cool, muddle headed and explained yeah. in his stance and, um, you know, kind of delivered you know, pretty pretty on point explanation and you know, stuck to what he thought was the right decision. And it's, it is kind of unfortunate that these districts are all kind of being thrown into this uh, process Crazy. and having to, you know, kind of make this decision when, you know, next week, the, the state, as you said, may just say, it's mandated anyway. So it, it seems like yeah. um, really kind of crazy. You know, I just want to jump in um, the district that I live in, Longwood, which is not on the South Fork, released their plan yesterday. And I just want to um, explain this one graphic that they contained in their presentation, which was really interesting. So if there was no mass mandate, if you have one kid who tests positive for COVID, then you have because of the social distancing guidelines, eight other kids who have to quarantine because of that kid, if there's no mask mandate. If there is a mask mandate and one kid tests positive, only the kid who tested positive has to quarantine. So when you look at it that way, I mean, how could you argue, you know? I was going to make the point about what what a difference a year makes when we were talking last year in the middle of the shutdown and kids having to be educated at home. The whole goal was, what do we have to do to get kids into the classroom for in-person learning? And, and at that point, I feel like if everybody had said, well, if everybody can wear masks, we can go back to in-person learning. Everybody would have thrown parties that, that we can send our kids back to school. They'll just have to wear masks. Um, now this year, that's where we are. That, that the mask, idea- mask, mask just got so political. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but, but the, facts on the, the facts on the ground haven't changed. That's the right. point. It's, it's amazing. No, it, to me. It, per, it perplexes me that, that parents would stand up and, 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 and put their argument against masks, against the safety of their children and the other children in their children's classes. That, that they would they would say, no, we don't we don't want our kids. It just perplexes me that they wouldn't want masks. I, don't I mean, and the, the, the idea is sort of that it's just it's just this personal choice. It's my choice. It's my kid. It doesn't sort of take into account the effect that that has on other people, because it's, your kid uh, it's might get other kids you, sick, get, yeah. you get it sick. You spread it to someone else. They spread it to someone else. And I mean, it's not it's not just about preventing my child from getting sick. You, you know, it's a greater it's, uh, a, it's a public community. health it's emergency. State. It's a public health, right? 
And, yeah. and children are, you know, children who, you know, there's a, a large group of children under 12, right, that cannot get vaccinated. Exactly. So they are completely without any immunity to this and can't get any immunity to it. And if Unless you look the at virus. And it's a virus and it's an airborne virus. And if you look at the um, New York State's uh, Department of Health publishes this New York State report card and you can look at your district and it takes a little bit of digging. It's not too because it's a government website. It's not too user friendly. But um, really, <laughs> but um, you you can see they report the number of children living in a school district's geographical area within the territory who are ages five to 17, who have, have uh, you know, new cases in that age group within the school district. Not what the school's reporting, but just in, it's Department of Health data. So you can look there and you can see how many children in that age group in your school district are, um, you know, have, have been tested positive. And they are, children are getting COVID and those numbers, the, the percent positive, of course, it's a, a much smaller sample, but that's really all we're talking about here is a sample, right, of actual positive cases. The, the number of positive cases that they report all the time is only a sampling. It's There's so many unreported, especially now with the breakthrough infections. So the sampling is small, but that it's a much higher positivity rate than the, it's double the positivity rate of the, the cases at large in the at large population. So, wow. um, you know, so they are getting this. And so what happens now if they're in a classroom with, uh, you know, 20 other kids or however many other kids and poorly ventilated space, no masks and no social distancing. The part that gets me that, that I, I just think is so inconsistent is that there's, there is a message out there that we need to keep things open. We need to, we, we can't shut down again. We need to keep things open and, and that's fine. And I think this is exactly what that's about. Uh, but I don't see how you can have that position and also be against masks because it's, <laughs> it's just common sense that we all want to keep things up and we want the schools to be open again. It's really important for a lot of families and it's certainly important for the children. They're going to get a better educational experience with the schools being open. Well, and, and to that point, most of the districts that, that have, that we've covered that have talked about it, none of them are offering the remote learning option again yeah. because they want the kids in school, but so, which is great. And I think that's absolutely the right way to go, but, but then you've got to keep those kids safe if you're going to do that. It's going to be fascinating to watch this fall and see how things. Uh, I'm nervous, like everybody else. Two, I mean, two I weeks. We, I think We're we two don't weeks know. Out. We don't know what, what happens yeah. this fall. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And first, we have to survive a hurricane. Oh, let's uh, let's let's hope that uh, right <laughs> that that is that isn't coming. Uh, this is behind the headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, with us is Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Vera Chinise from Newsday. Uh, we could probably spend an entire show on it, Bill, but let's just briefly talk about the announcement uh, from the Shinnecock Nation this week. Uh, they had a vote last Saturday. Uh, of members of the nation, and they approved a couple of pretty significant economic development projects. Right. And, and these weren't anything that we hadn't heard about before. They've been talking about them for a while, but um, they're talking about developing the Westwoods property up in, in Hampton Bays, which they had said for years they, they, they weren't going to develop. They're talking about, uh, I mean, the big plan is I think it's a five-story hotel spa 
that would uh, be open year round and would be kind of high end cater to uh, Hampton's visitors. Um, they're also talking about, and they had talked about this before, a gas station and convenience store on the north side of Sunrise Highway near where the um, uh, monuments uh, were built or the, or the north, north Monument was built. And that would be um, tax-free gasoline for people leaving the Hamptons or for people like me who have to drive from Southampton to Riverhead every day, that's, that would be, uh, I, I think beneficial. I'm I'll, I'll stop in there and, and fill up. I think, that, you know, the, the hotel um, project, it's a, a $250 million project, but I think that's a great idea for, for the Shinnecock there. This is all part of the bigger effort to kind of, um, expand different different businesses in different ways that that they can generate revenue other than just the the powwow and and cigarette sales and and you know it includes the upcoming um, uh, cannabis sales and and just other measures to try to uh, to to bring them up to a level playing field. Those two projects, uh, the hotel and and the hotel had been teased before when they made the announcement about pursuing the gaming facility down on uh, the Shinnecock Neck property off of Montauk Highway. They talked then about uh, wanting to put in a hotel and spa uh, as sort of a related project up on Westwoods. But the the tax-free gasoline, uh, the gas station and convenience store along Sunrise Highway is something that's actually Fairly, it's it's won some support locally from from officials, right? That's something. Well, I think I think both projects have have um, have have won support from from both state and and local officials who officials who you know want to want to see the the Shinnecock do well. Um, I think you know the, the catch with the gas station is going to be they're going to have to work with the state DOT to um, you know to kind of develop an exit ramp there to to the gas station, and the DOT hasn't been. Um, super cooperative uh, with with the Shinnecock. So, that's an understatement. With lawsuits over over the um, you know the billboards and you know and all that, but uh, you know maybe I, I think everybody the Shinnecock are hopeful, and I think some local lawmakers are hopeful that um, with the change in the governor's seat, that uh, with with Kathy Hochul coming in, that she might be a little more receptive to working with the Shinnecock than. Governor Cuomo was, who by Shinnecock accounts just kind of ignored them and, and didn't give them um, any opportunities at all. That's a great point. That that could be a way that that change uh, has a real impact locally and the change in Albany. And by the way, Kathy Hogel is on uh, the East End this weekend um, on Friday and Saturday uh, for events. Um, so she's going to get a, an up close look and may hear from some local people about some of the local issues. Um, I, I wonder about the Westwoods property, though, Bill, that's going to I think that's going to be a, a sticking point for a lot of people, because that property is the one where originally they had broken ground uh, almost 20 years ago uh, on a proposal for a casino. And that prompted a lot of strong reaction. Locally. It was a different time then. And I think since oh, then, and, the, and there, there's a difference between a hotel and a casino, too, though, all the, obviously, to me, in my opinion, anyway, obviously, there's there's got to be a connection between the hotel and the casino. If they build the casino, then then obviously this is a place where if you look up in the casinos in Connecticut, there's all kinds of, um, you know, those are hotels as well. And this would work that. I think people are going to be less opposed to it than they were to a casino. 
um, sitting there, you know, 20 years. I think, you know, the, the opposition was to a casino in general and gambling and, and, and all that. But, um, you know, like you say, it's, you know, it's, there's going to be some not in my backyard um, sentiment as well. It's a beautiful piece of property and it's, it's, you know, vacant and, um, undeveloped and and all that and and you start you know you put a lot of traffic up there and uh, you know this five story hotel um, people may be concerned about that. This is also the latest volley in an ongoing battle with the State Department of Transportation, uh, of which the monuments along Sunrise Highway are a part of that. They certainly staked out uh, that property. The Westwoods property, for those who don't know, extends all the way from the bluffs overlooking the bay. Uh, up on that side, all the way down to uh, straddling Sunrise Highway. So it's a it's a big piece of property. But the big debate is whether uh, the nation has the right to develop that in the way that they're proposing. Uh, they are moving forward as if they do. And so that that's going to probably uh, this will be the next big push as far as the fight with the state um, for the use of that property. No question. Something we'll be keeping an eye on going forward. So. That's going to bring us to the end of our time, unfortunately. A lot of topics to cover, as always, um, things going on this summer and continuing into the future. We are happy to have this conversation. Uh, my thanks to Vera Chinise from Newsday for being with us this morning. Thanks, Vera. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. As always, appreciate you being here. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And Joe Workmeister, a regular as well. Thank you from the Times, uh, Times Review Media Group. Thanks, Joe. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And thank you to Bill Sutton, my co-host from the Express News Group. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Great show. Yes, thank you. And I want to thank everybody for joining us this morning for Behind the Headlines. We will be back here next week with another group of local journalists having stimulating conversations about what's going on behind the headlines on the stand. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, guys. See you next week. 